Let's do it. And now, shining the spotlight on the future of hockey. Hello, it's Paul Byron of the Vancouver Giants. I'm Kirby Dock of the Saskatoon Blades. I'm Dylan Cousins of the Westbridge Hurricanes. Hey guys, this is Cam Hurt. Spencer Knight. This is Matt Boldy. It's Alex Turcotte from Team USA. Hi, it's Maurice Sider from the Edelman. This is Alex Lafreniere of the Rimouski Oceanic. Major Junior. They were the best in the QMJHL. And now the Huskies are Memorial Cup champions. NCAA. Everybody in that Bulldog section's on their feet. The bench is ready to party as the UMD Bulldogs are back-to-back national champions. The World Juniors. Time winding down, and Finland has won the World Junior Championship in Vancouver in spectacular style. The NHL Draft. With the first pick overall, the New Jersey Devils are proud to select from the U.S. program, Jack Hughes. And more. Unbelievable. Wow. Incredible. This is the Pipeline Show. All right. Well, good weekend, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Pipeline Show. My name is Guy Flaming. Thanks again for uh, those returning listeners uh, for coming back for another episode. And if you're a newcomer, well, I appreciate you stopping by as well. Always like to hear uh, where people are coming from if they're new to the show and maybe how they found out and heard about the show. What encouraged you to download this week's episode? You can always uh, hit me up on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy is uh, where you can find me on Twitter. And i like to remind you, if you are a returning listener and uh, a longtime listener to the show and you get your a copy of the program from Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get it from, if there is a way to leave a, uh, a comment and or a rating, uh, please take a second to do that because it helps newcomers uh, who just stumble across the show. might encourage them and might help them make that decision to give the show a try as well. Also want to thank uh, the patrons, uh, the newest patrons who uh, have signed up via patreon.com slash the pipeline show. Thanks to Anita and Taco and uh, Alan. They've all signed up here in the last uh, week or so. And Greg and Debbie and Ben. Who else do we have? Uh, Marcus, Elaine, Tanya or Tanya. I hope you're all enjoying uh, the benefits like the early access to all the interviews that you hear on this week's episode. They've all been up. Uh, ahead of time for uh, patrons. Usually, you know, when things are normal, I like to do interviews early in the week and then get them up on the Patreon page. And then when the show comes out on Friday or as it is this weekend uh, on Saturday, well, patrons have had access to those interviews for uh, three, sometimes even four days. Uh, This week, though, all the interviews were done all on the same day and all within about two hours, two, three hours. Uh, all on Thursday. So that's actually why the show is coming out a day later, because I wanted to have the the early access available uh, for patrons. Uh, I mean, they're they're paying two bucks a month uh, for that privilege, uh, and it's their uh, contributions that keep the show going. So uh, I really appreciate uh, their help, and that's why the show is a day late this week. Big show, though, and uh, this opening segment isn't going to be very long because I want to get to the show and to the uh, to the interviews. Uh, so let's start off with the uh, question of the day, which is always done uh, via Twitter. And this week, uh, a lot of action again on Twitter because of another uh, logo tournament. This time it's the NCAA hockey logo tournament. And uh, as of uh, this morning, we are in the final four round, or maybe the frozen four round since we're talking college hockey. Uh, four programs left, and if you would have asked me at the start, 
uh, of the tournament, would any of these four be in the Frozen Four or the Final Four? Uh, I would have said maybe one. That would be Arizona State because I know it's got a big following. It's fairly new. It has a cool logo. Right now, they are uh, facing RIT, the Tigers, uh, in a one half of the uh, semifinal. And I I did not have RIT on my bracket uh, getting this far. But I have to tell you, I have been blown away by the uh, participation, let's say, of not just the school, and they've been retweeting stuff as well, but I've got uh, tweets right in front of me from the RIT pep band and the RIT corner crew and so many uh, alum uh, and uh, current uh, people who have gone to RIT. It's actually quite impressive. There was an epic uh, match between RIT and uh, the University of Michigan. Almost 2,000 votes. Now, most of these are bringing in about 700, 800 votes. Uh, that one was uh, amazing. And RIT was trailing for, you know, these are 24-hour polls. When I went to bed, Michigan had a fairly significant lead. When I woke up the next morning, RIT had narrowed that gap significantly. And then there was a big push at the end. They actually won. I think they had about 56% of the votes. So they uh, really, it was a classic third period comeback by RIT. Right now, I might consider them the favorites just because they were able to rally. Now, they also, there was a lot of uh, RIT supporters who were soliciting support from Ohio State fans and you know, other Big Ten rivals uh, for Michigan uh, to knock off the Wolverines out of this tournament. So kudos to them. They're resourceful, that's for sure. So it is RIT against Arizona State on one half. The other half, I didn't have either either one uh, of these two uh, getting this far. UNLV, the Rebels, they're an invite to the tournament. They're not a Division One hockey program, uh, but I needed to fill out the bracket with 64 teams, and there are only 60 in Division One. So read some articles and uh, talked to a, a couple of people, insiders, uh, you know, guests that I have on the show to talk college hockey and asked them. Give me four examples of schools that uh, are really good bets to eventually, and maybe sooner as opposed to later, have a Division One hockey program. Illinois, who is, I mean, there's a story on USCHO right now about how they might have been a month or two away from announcing uh, that they are adding Division One hockey to their school. That's why they're in the tournament, or they were, knocked out in the first round because they've got a uh, an I, the letter I, as their logo and the other two of the other four invites were also uh simple letters as well syracuse just a big s they they were knocked out in the first round and navy which is an n with uh, a little star above it to signify the the north star uh, they also were eliminated in the first round now navy also had there was some controversy because some people were mad i didn't use they have like a ram like a like a sheep as one of their logos but I go with whatever the logo for the team is on their website. That's the first criteria. And also in my head, I'm thinking, uh, why does Navy have a ram uh, as their animal? Why not something that had to do with water? Uh, but anyway, it is UNLV, the uh, other invite, the last invite who has gotten this far. The Rebels, it's it's a good logo. They actually have a, a an alternate logo as well, where the uh, it's the same face, but uh, they add a, a hockey stick and a pair of gloves, so it's a little cartoon hockey playing rebel. But I went with the one that I went with, and it's doing extremely well. They are taking on the University of Connecticut, the um, Huskies. 
They survive the Battle of the Huskies and the Battle of the Dogs. They come out of that bracket, and they uh, just beat the Colonials from Robert Morris. I did not have the Huskies, the Connecticut Huskies, uh, getting this far. Uh, I actually thought it might be the uh, the Golden Knights from Clarkson. That was the team that I had picked, but uh, Robert Morris knocked them off in, I believe it was the Sweet 16 round. So you've got the Huskies against the Rebels. you got RIT taking on Arizona State. One of those four is going to win it all, and it is up to you, the listeners, and the voters on Twitter. So at TPS underscore Gee is where you can vote. Uh, I can tell you right now, and the matchups have only been uh, going on for about 20, 25 minutes. The early lead right now, RIT, was 73.2% of the vote against Arizona State. And Connecticut has a slight edge on UNLV, 52.3%. So that's where things stand as we speak right now. All guests join me courtesy the Troubled Monk hotline. And uh, you heard me uh, speaking with Bud Kelly from Troubled Monk uh, fairly recently on the show. They are still doing home deliveries during this whole effort to uh, flatten the curve. You get your orders in by 1 o'clock and you will get free same-day delivery it's got to make sure that you're you're not ordering just a six pack to get free delivery. It's got to be fifty bucks or more, and quite honestly, it doesn't take a whole lot to get up to fifty bucks. And I say that because the beer is so damn good. You can also get the hand cleanser as well. And as you heard Bud mention last week, uh, it's limited to Red Deer, Edmonton, or Calgary, but Edmonton now includes Sherwood Park and St. Albert as well. Uh, all the details are available at their website, troubledmonk.com. Big show today. Uh, it could be a long one. I haven't timed it out just yet. But uh, the opening segment with my first guest today, it's one of those long-form conversations. We started calling them shooting the shit with dot, dot, dot. Well, today it is uh, shooting the shit with Sam Cosentino from uh, Sportsnet. I learned some stuff in this interview. I had no idea. Sam has been a friend, and he's been on the show you know, for the better part. Probably this is the 15th year of the show. Probably 13, 14 years. Uh, and I learned things uh, in this conversation that I didn't know, such as I had no idea he was a once a bat boy for the Toronto Blue Jays, and not just like for a summer, but like for three or four seasons, something like that. And then he was running the clubhouse, the uh, the visiting team clubhouse. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it. It's a it's a terrific conversation, uh, a lot more than just hockey. I mean, if you're, it's more about him as and his career. Uh, really intriguing conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. I certainly did. Uh, from that conversation with Sam, uh, we'll have a pair of 2020 draft spotlight segments. So we're going to start both guys coming from the Ontario Hockey League, uh, neither one of them Canadian. In fact, the first player is actually in uh, Oslo, Norway right now. He plays for the Mississauga Steelheads. He's ranked uh, 116 by uh, NHL Central Scouting. I asked him at the start, I said, how do I correctly pronounce your name? Uh, it's a bit of a tongue twister, but, you know, and he said, uh, Ole Julian Bjorgvik home. But uh, I said, okay, but how do you say it? And that's when he uh, gets into the correct pronunciation. I tried. I did my best, but uh, stick around for that one to see how badly I screw up his name. The third guest segment, another 2020 draft spotlight, another Ontario Hockey League guy. This one from the United States. His name is Antonio Stranges. Looks like Stranges, but he uh, pronounces it Stranges. Uh, so we'll get to know him, highly touted player coming into his OHL career. And I have seen uh, rankings out there that have him, uh, you know, as high as uh, the first round. I think most uh, that I've seen, they'll probably have him in the second round. 
But interesting player and uh, lots to say. I wanted to thank uh, both of the uh, agencies uh, for those players. Right now, some of the teams are shut down. It's a little hard to, to track down players. So I've been going through uh, the agents that I know. Uh, so thanks to uh, Scott Norton as well as uh, Scott Bartlett uh, for setting up uh, those respective interviews. Uh, and we're going to close out this week's episode catching up with the former Edmonton Oil King by the name of Cody Corbett. It's always great to talk to Corbs because he's a, a really good interview. But it was important this week I wanted to get his perspective. I had recently heard a podcast, and I, I apologize uh, to that show because I don't remember what it was. Um, but the uh, the host is from Minnesota, and he was talking to a scout, and a part of their conversation was about uh, the difficulty that players from Minnesota, high school players, have in regards to do they stay playing high school hockey there because it's such a huge thing, or... Uh, the thought of uh, leaving to go play junior, whether it's the USHL or the Western Hockey League, and how difficult that is, uh, a choice for them to make. And I thought, I've heard that a lot, but I know a guy who did that, and his career really took off when he did, uh, and, but it was it was tough for him to make that decision as well, and that was Cody Corbett. So I wanted to get his perspective on that subject. Uh, so we uh, talk a lot about about that but also about his career since uh, winning the Memorial Cup with the Oil Kings back in 2014. He's uh, played for a number of different pro teams. He's played in Europe a couple of uh, seasons as well. Uh, so lots to uh, catch up with Cody Corbett, uh, and that was a fun conversation uh, and some really good insight in the whole um, Minnesota high school hockey environment. I was going to say cult, but that has a negative connotation. It's just, it's just so unique, high school hockey in Minnesota. Uh, so we'll uh, talk to Cody Corbett about that. So that's a full show. That's a full guest list for sure. And uh, as I mentioned, the Sam Cosentino interview is uh, really long. It's uh, it's not quite an hour, uh, but it's long. Uh, you're going to enjoy it, though, for sure. And that is coming up first. So let's get to it. Sam Cosentino from Sportsnet. He's up first here on the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Athanasiu on the one-timer, fired it off the end boards. Here's Ekblad again, takes the shot, scores! A four-goal night for Aaron Ekblad! Hi, it's Aaron Ekblad from the Barry Colts, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show. There's a lot of people with disabilities that can't just go out and find a job. So we set out to create a business to fill those needs, one stick at a time. The Store Next Door gift shop is a Yarmouth-based manufacturer and retail outlet store. So we make great ideas that any of our employees come up with, and we reuse and recycle as much as possible. Our most popular item is probably our hockey furniture. We take broken hockey sticks and turn them into different products. We go through a lot of hockey sticks. A lot. A whole lot. Considering that it's only been a year and we're shipping internationally, I think that that's been a huge success. Most people's reactions are, wow, you do this here. We don't accept can't here. Everyone here learns in different ways, but we want to give everybody every opportunity to find exactly what works for them. There's nothing better than when a customer buys something and then one of our employees say, I made that. They have meaningful lives and build things they can be proud of and get a paycheck for it. I'm Amy Acker and we change lives one job at a time. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. And boom goes the dynamite. 
We are back on the Pipeline Show. We're going to kick things off in uh, fine fashion as uh, we're glad to speak with uh, an old friend of the, the, the Pipeline Show. And when I say old friend, I don't mean he's old, although I think we're both getting up there these days. But uh, Sam Cosentino, welcome back to the Pipeline Show. How are you? Yeah, great to be back. And old is the right word for this guy. <laughs> I can tell you that. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, I'm glad uh, that you, I can hear you laughing and chuckling. That's good. Uh, these days can be a little crazy and a little stressful. Uh, what's life like uh, where you are? Well, um, we're doing our very best to respect uh, the rules of the land right now. I mean, getting out only for essentials and trying to limit those trips as much as possible. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to the home life, just finding ways to keep the kids entertained. We're able to construct a basketball net outside. So my son's really enjoyed that. That's taken him away from the little one here that's indoors. And my daughter continues with dance uh, classes through Zoom. Uh, and then the biggest thing for all of us is the homeschooling and just how much of a challenge that's been for my wife and I with, with two kids, uh, six and four, to try and get that sorted out. So that's that takes up the, the largest portion of our days. And then by the end of the day, you'd like to say you'd have time to do something else. <laughs> really, it's, it's shutdown time. But, you know, I guess, I guess you know, on, on the other hand, we have had some time uh, to kind of go through our house and go through a bunch of old stuff. And part of the fun of that has been going through some old memories. And part of that is being able to kind of um, get rid of some things that's, uh, that can be used for people that are less fortunate. We, um, you know, we donated stuff to some, to a woman's shelter a couple of years ago, and, and we've come up with 15 bags, big wow. garbage bags of stuff from our home of lightly used and mostly new things that our kids have grown out of before we had a time to get into. And so we're just waiting for the green light from, from the woman's shelter in our local area here to be able to go in and provide them with, uh, with some of those things. So that's uh, another thing that's uh, been a bit of a benefit here over this time. Well, that's a great idea. And I know locally here, some of the donation places have kind of been shut down. And so we're kind of doing the same thing, waiting for a uh, word on when we can and how we can uh, donate stuff. So good to hear that. And the uh, Zoom classes, the dance classes by Zoom, uh, you're used to that. That's how you uh, learn to dance, isn't it? <laughs> you ain't lying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I... You haven't seen my ballet shoes. Oh, that's a great, great <laughs> image I have in my head now, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, no dancing is not for me. But my wife comes from a, she comes from a huge dancing background, and it's, and it's awesome for my wife to see the the joy she gets out of watching my daughter dance, and especially tap. My wife was a was a rather famous tapper back in her day, so it's, that, that part's been awesome. Oh, interesting. All right. Uh, Sam Constantino is my guest. Uh, we're gonna, I've been calling this the shoot the shit segment. We're just going to uh, gab for right. a while and uh, kind of get to know a little bit about your career path and uh, some of the, the big uh, moments in your career over the years. And uh, had your counterpart, Pete Labardius, who was your partner for a long time on the show before, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Bob Ridley, the longtime voice of the, well, the forever voice of the Medicine Hat Tigers. And uh, so we'll uh, kind of continue in that fashion and uh, and look back on things in your career. How'd you get started? Well, um, it kind of goes back to when I was a kid, you know, six and seven years old. My grandfather was uh, was a horse owner. And so Woodbine Racetrack was, was rather close. And um, you know, my dad's side of the family, his grandfather owned the horses, had a, you know, he had five kids. 
And so our family was, was quite large. And a lot of times, you know, some of us uh, would go to the racetrack and then we'd leave early and then we'd go for our big Sunday family at di- dinners, which is kind of a traditional Italian thing to do. Mm-hmm. But as part of that and being able to go to the racetrack during the days, the, there was an announcer by the name of Daryl Wells. And so, you know, I, I'd rifle the program at the end of the day and put it in my pocket and then I'd start trying to call fake horse races when I was a kid down in the basement. And that's kind of where, where it all got started for me. And then really, um, it kind of dates back to, to school. I was actually a, I was a baseball player at a, at a small school in Michigan. And part of the reason I went there was because they had a great broadcasting program. So I was able to find a school that was going to pay me some money to play baseball and pay some money for for my uh, education and it just happened to be a really good place to do that so back in the early 90s uh, i went to school and played baseball during the spring and the fall and in the off season i called college basketball games and worked at the at the school's radio station and that's where where really it got going for me and that was i didn't even want to say but back in the early 90s (laughs) over your career uh your broadcasting career you've done have you done play-by-play as well as uh in color yeah, in basketball, I was the play-by-play guy. I was the, kind of the one-man band for school. So I didn't travel. I traveled to schools that were close that we played. Um, but uh, for the most part, I, I just did all the home games. Okay. And then as part of that, we try and go out and, and sell a little bit of the the sponsorship to you know defray the cost of what it would be to, to put it on there. Um, and then I did a little bit of play-by-play with the Montreal Expos in 2004 probably 30 some games with the blue Jays, another 30 some games in 2010 Hmm. and an old league known as the Canadian baseball league, which lasted less than a year. I was the, their only play by play announcer for that league. And that amounted to maybe 10 or 10 or 12 games. And I could probably write a book about what happened in, in, in that league for sure. Well, you got time. Oh man. (laughs) Well, there's there was a guy by the name of Charlton Louie, and who, as I understand it, worked for Microsoft and was very familiar to Bill Gates. So he was high up in the early stages of, of Microsoft. Right. And somehow, some way, he got connected with a guy by the name of Tony Riviera. And somehow, some way, this Tony Riviera was connected to baseball. He had a, 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 a LA Angels. World Series rank from, I believe it was when they won in 02, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to go back, but I think it was from 02. And somehow he befriended this guy, Charlton Louis, and they got into a partnership. And the, and the general idea behind it was to basically put a league together, somewhat like the Japanese league, hmm. played in Canada, but where the league would make its money on getting players posted or taken from that league to go into the, into the major leagues or one of the, you know, or one of the minor leagues. And so that requires a high level of, of player, but they were able to put a, a league together, put teams together. And I guess as part of their business expertise at the time, one other thing that they did was they were able to get like pizza huts inside of blockbusters in the States. So back when Blockbuster Video was big, you'd go into a Blockbuster to rent a movie, and then, hey, you want to grab a pizza on the way out? They'd had had a way of cooking and storing the pizzas in the Blockbuster store. Okay. So these guys had pretty 
pretty good business acumen. Well, they got into the league, and as it started going, this Tony Riviera, he just seemed more and more like a shyster. Uh, I mean, he'd show up at odd times and odd places, and you know, you started to hear things about people getting paid and not getting paid, and you know, there was there was just a lot of shady dealings. And as it turns out, we uh, wind up in Calgary for the All-Star game. And, and this league was able to attract some pretty good names in terms of managers. I mean, Ron LaFleur was a manager, which is a funny story in itself because the first game in Saskatoon where he was managing, he didn't actually show up because apparently he was, he was, uh, uh, there was an arrest warrant out for him in Florida and somehow somebody found out that he was up in Saskatoon. So he dodged it and ended up wherever he ended up. So that's just the part of the circus of this whole thing. But Jody Davis, the, the uh, great Cubs catcher, he was one of the managers. Pete LeCock had played with Kansas City. He was involved in the league. Um, Ron, Ron Renneke was one of the – or Gary – no, Ron Renneke, I think it was, um, who's now the manager of the Boston Red Sox, now managed the team in the league. So it was, it was really fascinating. But you just started to hear more and more stuff. We get to Calgary. It's the All-Star game. I uh, I hadn't been paid to this point for stuff that I'd done. And it right. wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, essentially I was coming out of pocket to go and, and work games. So I get to the Calgary airport. My rental car is supposed to be paid for. It's not. I get on the phone with uh, Charlton, Louis, and I said, well, here's how it's going to go, Charlton. I said, I haven't been paid to this point. For me, at that point in my career, it was a significant amount of money in terms of paying my mortgage and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what's going to happen here. I will assume the, the cost for this rental car. And if you don't show up at some point during the game, I will walk out of the broadcast booth in the, in the fourth or fifth inning or whatever it was, and you'll be left to your own devices. I said, so that's how it's going to work for me. And then you will continue. You, you'll have the embarrassment of that happening on national TV. Because at that point, I didn't care. I wasn't, you know, I was kind of subcontracted by the score. And I'm like, there's some money on the table here that I, that I need to collect. So I was working with Tom Balk, who was the curator of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame at the time. And I told Tommy my plans. And I said, you can choose to stay. You can choose to do what you want. But here's what I'm doing. I've told them by the fourth or fifth inning, I can't remember what it was. If they're not up there with a check in my hand, I'm out. I'm walking right out of the booth. So we get there, and it basically starts off with Willie Wilson, who was another one of the managers in our league, who was mic'd up. Basically said, hey, and you could hear it because we had the mic up, mm -hmm. and it was basically like, all right, let's get this shit over with, was how the, how the game started. With. <laughs> and previous to the game, there was a lots of guys there that were in the position that I was in where they hadn't been paid and so on and so forth. So they were thinking about pulling the shoot even before I was thinking about doing it in the middle of the game. Right. It was just a, it was just a circus. So anyways, they get it started. You know, Willie Wilson says his thing. They start playing, you know, as previous to that, it was a home run contest where I don't think anyone hit a home run. Like it was just, it was a disaster. So, you know, we're going through this and, and sure as heck by the third inning, Charlton Louie, he comes up to the booth and he hands me a check. I'm like, wow you know, one of the, one of the commercials. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, we end up finishing that game and this thing goes, it goes dead. But one of the guys who was looking at being involved, I think he had a small involvement in it, but someone who I thought might actually rescue the league 
was a guy by the name of Jeffrey Mallet. So Jeffrey Mallet was one of the original uh, founders of Yahoo. Hmm. He's San Francisco based. He's a Canadian guy from Victoria, I believe, uh, and a huge baseball fan who does have a small piece, or at least to my last recollection, had a small piece of the San Francisco Giants. So he had baseball acumen and he had money and he had all those things. And I guess he walked in and looked at, you know, the, the, the contract and the situation and, and he had strongly pondered moving forward and taking it over himself. He decided against it, which was probably a wise move and the league essentially ended on that day. Well, I still had some outstanding debts that were owed to me, but the bulk of the the bulk of what was owed to me was paid to me in that check that I actually cashed and was good okay. from the game in the booth. And so now I get a FedEx one day, it comes to my house and it's like thick, you know, letter size, but it's thick. So I open it up and it is a list of the creditors of the Canadian baseball league. And, and it must've been 50, 60 pages deep, you know, Joe Blow's store in Saskatoon, this guy's place in Niagara, this guy's place in Welland, FedEx, sports store, all kinds of stuff, right. millions of dollars, millions of dollars. So of course I never saw the rest of that money. I think I, I ended up getting a check for maybe, you know, 10 cents on a dollar or whatever, which didn't amount to very much at all with what was left that was owed to me. Right. So that was, that was, uh, you know, a real interesting, real interesting part of, uh, of my career. And again, you could go on and write a book about it and it'd be really interesting to see where some of those characters ended up. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a guy by the name of Garvin, Garvin Alston or Garvin Alton, Garvin Alston. And I think he's a pitching coach for the San Francisco Giants. So like, it's just crazy how, how, how it all kind of shook down. But I know for sure he was either the pitching or the bullpen coach for the San Francisco Giants at one point, whether he's still there or not, I don't know. But uh, that's kind of how, how it got going, uh, how it got going for me. Wow, that's unbelievable! What a story that you. That you <laughs> oh man! And, and and listen, you actually ha- might have the free time to write that book these days. Uh, the way the way things are dragging out. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, I'd be it'd be fun to get in touch with some of those people. So okay. a guy that I that I still work with at Sportsnet, Greg Breckel, I think he lives in the in Washington. He's done all kinds of stuff, you know, Olympics, this and that. And the reason why it ever ended up on TV in the first place, which is, again, another part of the circus story, he ends up flying. He's flying first class somewhere. And and he actually sits next to this Tony Riviera guy. So they get shooting the breeze. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, hey, I'm a TV guy who knows how to produce and direct. And you're a baseball guy who's starting a league. Well, I could put your league on TV. And that's where it all started. Wow. That's where it all started on a conversation on an airplane. And then, of course, at the score, we ended up picking it up. And, you know, uh, Buck Martinez was actually the guy who put in a call and wrote the letter for me to this Tony Riviera about me doing the, the play-by-play. Because as you can imagine, there was tons of people that were that were up for that job. Sure. And because this shyster was, you know, he was a bit of a stargazer, and the second Buck picked up the phone and wrote a letter to him, that was it. I had the job. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Pretty, pretty crazy. So, and you played ball as a kid when you were at the school, like in, in broadcasting school. You were a ball player. So was baseball your first love? Yeah, because, you know, like I started with a, as a bat boy in the visiting clubhouse at 16 years old with the Blue Jays. So that oh, really? dates back to, yeah, 1987, Exhibition Stadium. 
uh, one of my best pals growing up, Sean Travers was, uh, working there and they had an opening. And so he called me, I got interviewed and it turns that turned into basically 12 years in two different stints with the blue Jays. And that's also pretty, pretty wild story how that came together. And I worked there in 87, 88, um, 89 midway through the year, we moved to the dome. Our opening game in the dome was June 5th of 89 against Milwaukee. So I was, I was present for that. Wow. And then in 1990, I worked that season and then I left, um, at, at the end of that season and went to school. Uh, and then I stayed in school. Of course, they had the all-star game in 91. I was in school. Won the world series in 92. I wasn't a part of it. Won the world series in 93. I wasn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. And then 94, the, the strike happened. I graduate and in about, I don't know, late April of 95, baseball went back. And so the Blue Jays called me and said, Hey, we're scrambling for staff here. Do you want to come and work in the visiting clubhouse, the job you had four years ago? And I said, yeah, okay. So the guy I was working for ends up getting fired. And so I ran the visiting clubhouse for the last two and a half months of the season in 95. In 1996, the home clubhouse run by Jeff Ross up until very recently and Kevin Malloy uh, hired me to work over there. And that was the best job ever because I would go spring training, work all spring training, and then I'd come home and just work home games. So I did that for 96, 97. I did that till 2002. Um, and it was, it was enough money to get by. I was still living at home and that was really cool, mm-hmm. but I needed something else. So in 99, I started working at the score. So when the team went, went on the road or in baseball's off season, I'd be working at the score voicing highlights. And when the blue Jays were back on the score was good enough to work around my schedule. When the team would go on trips, I'd go and fill in shifts. And when the team was home, I'd work for the blue Jays. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I did that for a long time. So I, I, you know, I made unbelievable friendships through that. I can't even tell you about the number of times that you played golf with a, you know, a Roger Clemens, a Chris Carpenter, Eddie Sprague, Pat Hankin, Woody Williams, Darren Fletcher. I mean, all guys today, Sean Green, Alex Gonzalez, Carlos Logato, that I consider friends and, and stay in contact with. So it's, it's, you know what, I've been blessed to, to be able to work in all the different areas that I've worked in, but without a doubt, the best job ever. Ever. Wow, that's amazing! Uh, out of curiosity, oh, yeah. when you say you you ran the, uh, the 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 clubhouse, what does that mean? So uh, the the visiting clubhouse. So when the visiting team comes into town, you're responsible that when they arrive, whenever that may be, it could be two in the morning if they're coming in from another city. Right. But you take all the wet bags, and wet bags are essentially all the dirty clothes. You wash all all of those things, all their uniforms. You set up all the lockers for every one of the players and the staff in the room, and then you fully um, you fully have prepared the clubhouse for uh, all meals, uh, refreshments, snacks, and whatever whatever other crazy requests that that might come your way. So you, you know, I might get a call the day before and say, "Hey, the Yankees are coming to town. Lou Pinella wants to go up to this place because." He wants to do his off-track betting and wants to have a bite to eat before this series starts or when the game ends or, hey, can you rent a guy this, uh, you know, can you get a rental car or set up a car service for this guy because he wants to go play golf somewhere? Can you set up some golf? Can you, all kinds of crazy stuff. Can you send my wife flowers? Can you do this? Can you do that? Really? All, all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of different requests, man. And, wow. and so essentially you're responsible for the staff. So I would have um, a bat boy. 
ball boy, and then three uh, what they call clubhouse attendants. And so they all worked kind of under under my umbrella, and then I would just kind of delegate whatever duties they're supposed to do from you know, I'd arrive at, let's say, noon for a seven o'clock game and you'd work till about midnight or one in the morning when all the laundry's put away after the night's over and then you'd do it again the next day. Wow. And then so eventually you're you're broadcasting as a as a play-by-play you did, you said, and uh, I seem to recall seeing photos and stuff. Well, uh, I don't know what part of the broadcast it was, but you'd be on the field and interviewing players and stuff like that. Uh, that's So to transition from employee to broadcaster covering the team, <laughs> was, that, was that weird? Totally weird. Because when I worked there, I could walk into any room at any time and do whatever I wanted. Right. And I could tell, you know, the guy you didn't like or having a beef with or just busting chops, you could tell him, you know, F you or you're a piece of shit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could have those real frank and candid conversations with guys. And on the media side, you were limited to one area at certain times and you couldn't really have those frank and candid conversations unless you knew you had a really good relationship with the player. So I still had a lot of a lot of good relationships with guys, Ricky Romero or Sean Markham or those types of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, yeah, it was different. It was weird. And, you know, you tried to leverage some of those relationships and you were able to do that on occasion. Uh, but it was nowhere near having the all-access pass that I had when I worked there, that's for sure. Yeah, it's got to be weird to be an inside guy and then suddenly you're you're still around everybody, but you're not part of it anymore. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of that too, is you, you know, so many people in the organization, so you're very acutely aware of what's going on, but you're right. also acutely aware of what you can't say about what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well then, uh, from baseball, uh, we, uh, I think most people now recognize you as a hockey guy, but, uh, how long until you went from baseball to hockey? Well, as, as in, in around 97, 98, you know, I'd worked at TSN for a little bit on the website. And as part of that, I, I wanted to branch out a little further. So local Rogers, which is, you know, in, in Alberta, you wouldn't quite know it. But but the local Rogers in Ontario used to carry all the Ontario Hockey League teams games. Mm-hmm. And so I did work for Brampton. I did work for Mississauga back in the days when Don Cherry was the owner. I did some work in Barrie um, in each of those three markets some on local radio, but for the most part on the, on the local TV coverage. So, and you could show up and I could be a host one game. I could be the color guy, another game, you know, it was, it was awesome, awesome experience. So I transitioned into hockey, even at that time. And then it didn't really come full circle to, to do stuff with sports until basically the, the Oh, three Oh four seasons. When I started to work in with Pete, I, um, you know, like I, I was called in to, to pinch hit for, um, for John Groves, who was going through some, uh, very serious health challenges with his daughter who has since passed. And, um, you know, there were some trips that John couldn't make it on and they called me at the last minute to go and do them. And same thing happened at that time. Sportsnet ended up picking up the rights to, to the world junior pre-tournament games. Mm-hmm. And so we'd have, regional games we'd have all our broadcast crews spread out doing regional games and there would be even more crews doing the preliminary world junior games so at one point it left an open chl game um my partner who i'd worked with in brampton a guy by the name of dan dunleavy who's now the buffalo sabers play-by-play announcer oddly enough they asked 
Dan, hey, you're, do, you're doing this game on Sportsnet. Who do you want to work with you? And Dan said, well, I work with Sammy all the time. We have a good relationship. You know, would you mind if it was him? And so that was another part of how I got started at Sportsnet, doing three or four or five games that year. And then, of course, the next year was a lockout year. Well, when we came back in 05, 06, you know, John Drews had decided to, to move on from the booth, and that's when I got hooked up with Pete. Well, and I just had Pete on uh, a couple of weeks back, and uh, he, he talked about the, the the chemistry between the two of you. And as a viewer, I mean, it was pretty obvious, or it seemed like it was pretty uh, a, a solid, not just a partnership on the air, but uh, like a professional a partnership. But it seemed like you guys were pretty good friends as well, uh, and that came through in the broadcast. What makes a good broadcast partnership like that? Well, it's it's really nice of you to say that, but I think you have to be you have to be friends first. You have to have kind of the same common goals. Um, and I think you, you have to be passionate about the job you're doing. And you also have to be a little bit open and a little bit flexible. So if, if you have those things in place, then there's a pretty good chance you're going to have good chemistry. I will say this. I mean, you know, Tom Cheek and Jerry Howard were never known to be great friends. They were never known to, to do much away from the, from the ball field yet they still found a way to make it work on, on Blue Jays radio for years and years and years. Mm. So kudos to them for, for working around some of the differences they had as, as people. Um, but when it comes to Pete, it was pretty obvious, you know, you meet him for four seconds and you know he's passionate about the game. Uh, intimidating too, because his knowledge extends back years and years and years, and it's stuck with him. It stays with him like he's He's got that identic memory that he can remember all these things from years past. So right. somewhat intimidating to work with someone like that because they're just they're just so knowledgeable and their memory is just so good. Uh, I have a guy like that that I work with now, an RJ Broadhead, who who's a little bit different in terms of his recall ability is is based a lot on going back, rewatching games, going back through his notes. Like he is a meticulous worker, man. Like an unbelievably professional worker. So I've been blessed to work with two guys who, who have that ability to recall things from the past. Nowhere, you know, I, I can't even hold a candle to that. Hmm. Um, but getting to work with Pete, four seconds you meet him, you know he's passionate about it. And so Pete's thing that was taught to him back when he was coming up um, in Saskatchewan broadcasting was you have to, you know, being there means you care. So for Pete, We'd go on a road trip and he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll look at the travel. We'll, you know, we always go in a day early, but we're going to go in early so that we can either go to a practice or go to a game and talk to as many people as we can and, and just go and watch hockey. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. So he kind of set the, he set the tone for us. And he'd go in there and he knew every, every player on every team and every coach and general manager everywhere we went. Everyone knew Pete. Hmm. And so getting into an office or getting into a conversation, even off the record, was really easy. Right. I'll never forget that the, the, one of the first games I did with them was in Cologne in the 0304 season. And Portland was playing that game. Um, and I, like, I, I knew of the Western Hockey League, but I knew nothing about it. So it was a, you know, like a crash course in, in, in cramming. So I got up to speed as best I could and had some information in the players. But we walked into Kelowna, and within probably 15 minutes of being there, Pete had us in Mark Habscheid's room, and Mark Habscheid's explaining this revolutionary defensive tactic that he's now employing with his group. And if you think about it, it's, it kind of 
set the tone for what you see in the NHL today. Their idea would be our best people at defending are defensemen. So why are we leaving one defenseman in front of the net when the puck's not there? If the puck's in the corner, let's send our two best defenders to go get the puck from the guy, and we don't have to worry about what's happening in front of the net. So oftentimes it was it was kind of the, I guess the the basic layout for the swarm defense if you, if if you want to refer to it as that, and so he explained that really in in great detail and in depth and you know certain stuff about this you can use certain stuff you can't and he was willing to say all this in front of me and he'd never met me before right but because of Pete and the relationship Pete had with him he spilled the beans for us and it was awesome so uh, you know like working with him. It was great because his work ethic was such that you were always at the rink. You're always preparing, going to a practice. You're always trying to make yourself better for that game. And then obviously his in-game presentation was amazing. Um, you know, his ability to, his cadence, his goal call, all that stuff was, was awesome. And I, as I worked with him more, we started to get the chemistry as to when I could jump in during play, mm-hmm. when to back off. He would respect that when the whistle blows, he'd get out quickly. So that would allow me time between whistles to, to make my analysis. And, um, and it really blossomed from there. And it was, it was an unbelievable six years, uh, you know, working with Peter last Memorial cup in 2011 in Mississauga. Um, and then with the neat part about that is that's where he, he's met his current, uh, his current wife. And then from there, uh, your partnership now with RJ, you mentioned him as well. I guess like, uh, you know, uh, when a player gets traded to a team and might take a little time to, to find that chemistry again, was it similar in the broadcast booth as well, getting used to a new partner? Well, the similarities help because RJ is, is a preparation freak. I mean, he is on it, man. He is, he is all over it and he knows everything about every player the same way that Pete did. Um, so that part was nice because it was easily able to transition from one guy who wanted to work his rear end off to another guy who was going to do the same thing. Mm. And I guess the one thing that I took from Pete and, and brought to RJ, I'm like, let me book the travel. I'll call ahead. I'll call the coaches and see who's practicing and when. If not, I'll check the schedule to see if there's a game within a two-hour drive, and then we can get in there and, and you know and get to see games and talk to people and all that. So RJ was, was happy to turn that part over to me. I took that from Pete, carried it forward with our current group, and it's uh, – kind of a method we employ today but okay. rj man he's you know his call he, he's an, he's an amazing game caller um he has a real sense of uh you know the one the one great thing about bob cole is he always had that sense for the moment as to when to elevate and when to back off and rj has a real keen sense for the game you know he played at such a high level that he's he's got a keen sense as to when he needs to ramp it up and when he needs to back it off and I have a great appreciation for his ability to call a game. I've often said about RJ that I don't know why he's working with a with a shemper like me when he should be doing NHL games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've done play-by-play. You've done color. Uh, they're different jobs, aren't they? I've never done play-by-play. I've done color a number of years now, but um, but they're they're different challenges, aren't they? How are they different from your perspective? Play-by-play, you obviously have to concentrate and be descriptive on on what's happening. But you also have to be the be the setup guy, and mean setting up for the show. So that requires a certain skill set to be able to do that. Then transition to calling in the game, then transition back to to taking the show off the air. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, I I saw I I was horrible. I was a horrible play by play announcer. 
basketball, okay. And baseball, I was brutal. For some reason, it, you know, and maybe it wasn't enough reps for me or whatever, or maybe the reps that I had were, were too um, spread apart, but I wasn't very good at it. And as much as I knew about the game of baseball from having worked inside it and played it at a high level, it just didn't slow down for me in the booth the way I thought it would. Um, and so I sucked at it, to be perfectly honest with you. So the, for me, what, what makes it a, a little bit easier from the color perspective is two things. In TV, you, you have a talkback button, which is a direct line to the producer that doesn't go on air. So if I happen to see something, I can get on to the producer through a line that no one can hear and say, hey, I want to go back and see this or show me this replay or I want another look at this or so on and so forth. Or, hey, I, you know, I'm listening to RJ. RJ is just talking about, uh, you know, this guy's career and how it's really blossomed. And I'll say, all right, to our producer, hey, we have a graphic on this guy's career. Can we put it up at the whistle? It'll sound like RJ and I were talking about it and then we can show it. So it, it allows you a little, like a, a, a minute time of preparation within the game. Right. And the other part of it is reactionary. And I think I'm a little bit better reacting to something than I was trying to pre-plan and call it in my head as a play-by-play guy. So I don't know. How do you feel about the, about the, about the analyst job? Well, for, for me, I mean, analyst, I've always looked at it and I don't know if, if it was told to me this way or not, but the play-by-play guy's job is to describe what's happening and the color guy's job is to kind of fill in the blanks and add color to the broadcast with some stats or stories. And Mm -hmm. I can, I can really tell when a play-by-play guy is a guy who's never worked with a color guy before. Maybe he's like from a a league that it was only a play-by-play guy. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he's got a color guy, but he just keeps talking and the color guy never gets a chance to do his job. I I can kind of tell when that when the play-by-play guy has got that sort of background but for for myself i'm always wondering when it's appropriate to jump in and kind of insert because i don't want to step i don't want to butt in on the play-by-play guy's job so sometimes i find myself i'll wait for the whistle other times it's you know if the puck gets dumped and there's a guy going back to pick up the puck well then that's time i can jump in without kind of interrupting the flow of the play-by-play guy um so it's 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 i don't know it's a it's almost a feel that you kind of have to have. And, and listen, I I don't want to sound like I'm a, an expert on it by any means, but that's kind of the way I've looked at it. But it, it is a, it is a real feel thing. And and RJ's is RJ is supremely technical, and so he leaves gaps for me when he sees an icing might be upcoming, when he sees play in neutral ice. Um, but he's you know he wants to make certain that when the play's in either zone, that I need to you know, I need to back off in case there's a scoring chance and they happen really quickly in our game because of turnovers and mistakes and so on and so forth. Right. So that's one thing that I've really tried to concentrate on working with RJ is stay out of the way in the two zones and, and recognize that when there's something happening, you know, delayed offside and icing a puck dump, the line change, so on and so forth that I might have the opportunity to jump in during the play. But it's, it's an on, it's an ongoing thing. Like you really have to pay attention to what's going on while you're talking to the producer, while you're watching the game, while you're listening to RJ, so that when he makes a comment or asks you a question during play, that you can still respond to all those things. It's it's still a difficult job in, in that regard, I, I, I believe. Now, I always uh, admire the – I mean, you're one of the guys who always seems to have interesting tidbits on players that you're able to insert into the broadcast. When do you have the time to, to learn all these stories? Player X – 
He learned how to dance by Zoom meetings and stuff like that. <laughs> you just find these little uh, tidbits on guys. When do you when do you have the opportunity to, to learn all these stories? Well, you try and you try and search them. I mean, that's the the basic, most simple way to do it today. But a lot of times, a phone call with a coach or a meeting with a coach before a game, um, or a general manager or whatever, will elicit those types of types of stories. Right. Um, you know, mo- most recently with me working on the draft, that's been a real focus of mine is to try and find stories and things about players that you can't just look up that aren't easy to find. Because I do believe that's where our game really. Um, it really shines. There's so many great stories out there. Um, the idea behind it, though, is when you work in the CHL like I do, it's for me, I look at it as the NHL, pretty much everybody knows who everybody is. You're turned into the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know about Morgan Riley, you know when he was drafted, where he played, his junior hockey, what type of player he is, so on and so forth. Our games and our teams are on so infrequently Mm-hmm. that I feel it's part of my job to to educate the people on our players because our players are really, really good. And sometimes, you know, what might be very um, apparent to me, like Alexi Lafreniere is a really good player, may not be apparent to the general public. Maybe they haven't watched him. Maybe they haven't heard about him. You know, and maybe he's a he's a poor example because he's been the talk of the town here for two years. But there's been a lot of guys that have come through our junior ranks that are really, really good players. Like uh, Mark Shifley would be one of those guys who played in Barry, played under Dale Howarchuk, kind of went unnoticed. People, you know, ears perked up when they saw him go seventh overall, but it wasn't a huge surprise for us that we're working in the CHL that had the opportunity to watch him play sort of incognito in a small market like Barry. So I think it's incumbent upon someone who works in, in the CHL, like I do, to not just always tell people about what happened. We could spend our whole game talking about mistakes. But the way I've, the, the approach I've kind of taken uh, in working in the CHL is it's kids that are going to make mistakes. So rather than point out the mistake that, that happened, you point out the great play that the other player made to allow that goal to happen. Now, there are times when if a player's been in the league for a little while or he's an older player or a drafted player and he makes a mistake, that you understand he'll be able to handle that criticism. Right. And it's okay to point it out. But for the most part, and the same thing goes with the referees. The refs have a really tough job. The guy just worked nine to five selling, you know, chocolate bars or stock in a store or whatever else. And now he's coming to work the game and people are all over. So I try not to bust on the referees. I try not to, to overemphasize mistakes that are made. And I also try to um, educate people on some of the great stories of our kids in the CHL. Uh, Sam, when you look back at the, some of the the big games, big uh, sporting events that you've been a part of uh, for, as a broadcaster, what, what are some of the ones that uh, immediately jumped to the forefront? I was the the rink announcer in the 2004 season for the Toronto Rock, and that was a championship year. So I have a, a, a you know an NLL championship ring from that year, which is kind of that was kind of a neat thing. Right. Because in lacrosse, you can yell and scream and you can go nuts, and when we were you know, we were drawing 15,000 people a game that wow. year. It was, it was nuts. It was awesome. And if you've ever been to lacrosse, you get a real sense for just how exciting a game it is, how uh-huh. tough it is, uh-huh. and how skilled the, I mean, those guys are awesome athletes. And they're really cool to deal with too. I did some, uh, some hosting on our rock lacrosse games. And it was, that was one of the most fun times in broadcasting I've ever had. Cause I was allowed on the floor talking to coaches, players, like it was, 
it was amazing. So that would be one event, the 04 NLL championship. Um, the last, um, let's see, well, I was the first game in the dome working with the Blue Jays. I wasn't in broadcasting. Right. Um, but I'd look at, uh, let's see what other big events. My first Memorial Cup in Moncton in, in 2006. Mm-hmm. That was, the whole tournament was amazing. Patrick you know, Law against covered, Ted Nolan. Oh yeah. 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 That was a, you know, that was a, that was a fun thing to be able to, to call and see all those legendary coaches. But the last, uh, all-star game at Yankee stadium, um, that would be another one I've traveled 2008 world series was, was pretty neat. Um, yeah, I don't know. I covered the 06 world series. That was kind of cool too, because in the middle of that series, I went and had dinner with Chris Carpenter, who I'd known from my days with the blue Jays. Mm-hmm. And there was an off day in the series and he invited me to his house for dinner. That was, that was really, really kind of a cool thing to be able to do. Um, I don't know. I, there's been so many good events, but those are some of the ones that would stick out in my mind for sure. I mean, every Memorial cup is, is really that special for, you know, for me. And I guess the, there's two other things that, that stick out in my mind. 2004, March 1st, I worked with Pete Labardius in my only NHL game in my career, mm-hmm. New Jersey against Montreal. Um, I was an overtime game and Montreal won two, one, I think it was Jason Ward that had the overtime winner. So that's my first and only ever NHL game. And then I did a game as the color analyst along with, uh, Alan Ashby. Uh, and that was in 2000 and I think 11 as a, as a color analyst in baseball. So I, I, I can't say this with great certainty, but the one claim to fame I have that I don't think anyone else has the distinction of having is I've done the color for an NHL game and a major league baseball game. Oh, that's got to be a, can, yeah, pretty rare, uh, combination yeah. there. I would think, especially in Canada, cause there's really, only, there's only one team. I mean, way back in the Expos days, there might've been someone who, who did that, but I, I don't know. I can't think of anyone who's done that. So something I'm really proud of because I, you know, it shows that I was able to transition from, from baseball to hockey. And basketball before that, three very different sports. And certainly yeah. baseball in terms of how quickly it moves, a lot slower pace than, than basketball and hockey. Yeah. But things happen when things happen in baseball, they happen super quick. So you get a bases loaded and you get a triple into the corner. How many things are happening? That's four runners. And how many fielders are involved in the play? Yeah. Plus, you're trying to keep an eye on the umpire and what he's doing. So you're looking at trying to keep track of about ten people at one time, right? And where in hockey, only one one person has has the puck. I mean, you're obviously still worried about you know the rest of the, the other eleven players in the ice, uh, but you have some sort of anticipatory thing as to what's going to happen. In baseball, that ball goes into the corner. He bobbles at its extra base. Like there's so many different things that can happen on that one play in baseball. It's 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 almost too tough to anticipate. Mm. A guy bobbles, bad relay throw, um, you know, play at the plate. They miss the tag. He drops the ball, hits him in the back of the helmet. Does the runner take the extra base? The two runners take an extra base. Did a guy get hung up? Did he run through a coach's stop sign? A million things can happen on, on any one given play, especially when there's a lot of people on base in baseball. You're right, I, and I don't think I really thought of it all that much like that. Uh, but you're right. That's why I sucked at it. <laughs> I couldn't keep track. <laughs> you know, and then you got to remember number of outs is at the end of the inning. 
you know, is there a lead change? You know, how did, it, did the guy hit the hundred RBI mark? Um, you know, it was, honestly, there's so many things that come into play right. in baseball. Right. And then you're looking at nine man lineups and pitchers, pitching changes. It's hard, man. It's really hard. I have a lot of, a lot more respect now for baseball play by play guys than I did when I was doing it. Uh, what events ha- haven't you had a chance to broadcast yet that you'd love to? Is, is there a bucket list for you? Well, golf. I'd love. I'd love to be able to do something in golf. I I love the game so much, and I just, you know, playing it at a recreational level, you realize just how good these guys are. So, you know, a Canadian Open in my backyard at Glen Abbey at Glen Abbey would be something that I'd like to do. But there's. You know, this year's was to be played at St. George's, which is a little closer to Toronto. But I'd love the opportunity to do something in golf. I would love um, the opportunity to do something in horse racing. But I don't, you know, like Eddie Olchek is, I'm so, I'm so jealous of Eddie Olchek. Because he's, you know, on Derby Day and the Breeders' Cup, he's he's all in on the on the horse broadcast, on the horse racing broadcast. And so it makes me really jealous of him for sure. Well, I'm glad you brought up horse racing because I was going to bring it full circle. That was kind of where it all started for you, and and I was going to ask if you'd ever got to call a, a race at any level, the, but sounds like not yet. No, I've been up in the booth and watch how they do it, and honestly, I don't even know if I could because you're looking at, let's say, an eight-horse race, which is relatively average. Um, you know, one thing that you can, um, if you're around a lot, you can know the silks. So knowing the silks helps you know the owner, um, you know, the trainer, which aren't necessarily important when you're calling the race itself. They are important mm-hmm. if you were broadcasting a game. But to know, you know, kind of what jockey is on what horse and it happening, you know, basically every 20 minutes for you to get re-familiar with that same jockey who, if you're looking through your binoculars, looks the same, but now he's in a different set of silks. He's got a different helmet on. And he's riding a different numbered horse. So to be able to, to do it even for one race, I, man, that would be such a challenge. I'd, I would love to try and do it. I would love the opportunity to, to call the horse race live. I think that would be so cool. Um, but that, that uh, hasn't presented itself. I used to know a lot of people at the track. Some of them have, uh, have since moved on. Um, so I don't know if that will, will ever happen. But if it did, I'd be all up for it. Well, Sammy, uh, I, re- I kept you a long time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, the NHL draft scheduled for June 26th, 27th. If you're a betting guy, <laughs> does it happen uh, at that uh, at that date? I don't see how. I don't see how that how it could possibly happen. Um, we're probably looking to start to restart the season again. On what July 1st? So that would be after the draft date. I mean, if you're going to use point percentage or some of the things that have been uh, suggested here, um, you know, what do you do about the conditional picks? There's something that has to be made aware of there. Yeah. The flip side of that is, and Elliot brought up a great point in some of the stuff I was reading yesterday is there are a lot of people in the scouting industry whose contracts expire on July 1 right, or, or June 30th. And so if you put the draft into now August or September, what happens to a guy who's worked a hundred years for one organization and he leaves with all of his information and shows up on the doorstep of another organization and uses all of his data collected from the last organization to draft players for his new team. It, and and there would be tons of that that would happen, tons of it. 
you know, and you would like to say, Hey, you're not supposed to do that, but let's be honest. You're, you're trying to win for your new organization. So you, you'd bend the rules as much as you possibly could. And don't think it hasn't happened before. I mean, when general managers change jobs, right. You know what I mean? Um, of course you're going to be privy to what the last organization had had in store for you. So I, like you need a definitive endpoint to the season, I guess is where I'm trying to get at. So if you use the points percentage thing, all right, then I guess you can move forward with the order of selection and, and have the lottery, so on and so forth. If you now, depending on what happens to some teams in the playoffs, is dependent upon where their pick goes. So if Team X wins the Stanley Cup, then the trade made by them earlier with Team Y right. now moves to a first rounder instead of a second rounder. So you got to find a way to get around those those bumps and bruises too. We could we could potentially see a draft in October during a CHL season and and players are are getting drafted something like like that. I don't think it would be that late. I mean, I think I, I you know they you know there's been a lot of talk about the European players, and do we want to have a draft in September when the European leagues have started? Then there's potential for you to have that player come over here. Or a player who, let's say, two years ago was drafted, who was going to come over here, um, and and didn't because he knew his league was starting in Sweden, and and it wasn't sure about what was happening here. Right. So you know, like part part of that plays into it too. And I know Bill Daly has talked a lot about that with with what's happening with the European players. So I don't know. My best guess for this thing to to go down would, I would say, probably middle of August. Again. It, you know, a lot of the talk right now is being centered around, well, if we do it now, then we're going to create a lot of buzz. And the league probably needs that right now. But is that the, you know, is that the right, is it the right thing to do? I guess if you had 31 teams that agreed on it, then you could have it whenever you wanted. Mm. But, you know, the Ottawa's and the New Jersey's who are hinging on their future future success based on what happened in this draft, they surely wouldn't. They didn't do all this work to put themselves in this position to have the draft go sideways on them. Right? Yeah, so many moving pieces uh, still to oh, be to figured out. Colossal uh, effort to, to to go through all these contingencies and that's crazy. Who knows? Well, Sambo, I really appreciate uh, everything you've done on our show uh, over the last uh, decade eight and a half that uh, you've been coming on and chatting with myself and with Dean before that and Taylor Medic along the way and. Uh, all the times that you've had us on, and when Corey and I uh, got out to London for the Memorial Cup, and I uh, got to see, uh, got to witness you working in the booth like that, and uh, spent some time with us. It's been, uh, it's been great to get to know you. I consider you a friend as well, and I uh, certainly wish you the best, and can't wait to chat again uh, for the next number of years. Yeah, thanks, buddy. It's, uh, I can't believe it's been that long, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, geez. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's always a always a pleasure to talk, and glad we we had some time to stretch it out today. All right. Well, stay safe, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot, buddy. Good talking to you. Sam Cosentino from uh, Rogers Sportsnet, good friend of the Pipeline Show and a terrific broadcaster. I had no idea that he had done those other sports. Uh, I've only known him as a hockey guy, so I didn't know he did basketball once upon a time and uh, baseball. I had no idea that he was a bat boy for the Toronto Blue Jays. That was a really cool conversation. His uh, recounting of the events around the Canadian Baseball League, that is, wow, that's uh, that's like uh, the Canadian version of the original XFL or something like that. Great stuff. 
Always great to have Sam on the show, but this one was uh, might have been the best uh, Sam Cosentino appearance of all time here on the Pipeline Show. An example of why he's one of my favorite guests to get on the program. I'm really loving the long-form conversations, too. If there's another uh, person or a suggestion you might have uh, as a uh, guest you'd like to hear more about, uh, let me know. You can hit me up on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. Some people have emailed me as well, Guy at thepipelineshow.com. Still to come, you're going to hear from Antonio Strangis of the London Knights. Also a uh, conversation with the former Edmonton Oil King, Cody Corbett, about leaving Minnesota high school hockey to, to come play in the WHL and what that process is like. What happens? Uh, how do your friends and your former teammates feel about you leaving high school hockey in Minnesota? Uh, you'll like that conversation. Uh, but coming up next, uh, the first of two 2020 draft spotlights, Ule Julian. Bjork Vic home. He's a defenseman with the Mississauga Steelheads out of the OHL. Get to know him next here on the Pipeline Show. Steal by Ryan Suzuki. Flipped it up center ice. Here's Cole Perfetti. What a chance to win the game. Perfetti backhand. He scores! Cole Perfetti wins it in overtime on a breakaway. Hey, it's Cole Perfetti of the Saginaw Spirit, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. From the organization that brought you Mark Messier, Matt Benning, and Ian Mitchell, Spruce Grove Saints Junior A Hockey is officially back for the 2019-2020 season with all the action taking place at the Grant Fear Arena in Spruce Grove. With tickets starting at just $15 per person, AJHL Hockey provides some quality entertainment. For more information, visit www.sprucegrovesaints.ca. You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> we are back on the Pipeline Show. My name is Guy Flaming, and we're going to have a uh, 2020 draft spotlight segment where we talk to another player that is eligible for the upcoming. NHL draft. Who knows if it's still going to go as scheduled at the end of June or not, but uh, let's pretend that it is. And uh, well, let's talk to another player that is up for the draft this year. And our, our guest today plays in the Ontario Hockey League, but he's back home in Oslo, Norway right now. I, I said Oslo, but uh, I'm not sure if that's actually where you are. And I'm going to butcher the name. I'm warning everybody right now, but Ule Julian Bjorkvist home, my guest. He plays for the Mississauga Steelheads. Uli, welcome back, or welcome to the Pipeline Show. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to get a chance to speak with you, and I apologize. I'm sure I destroyed your name, and uh, you're fine. <laughs> you, your whole family is going to be angry with me, but uh, was I close? Uh, close enough. Close enough. <laughs> Thank you. Just for the, for the listeners uh, that are hearing this right now, how do you correctly pronounce your full name? Ole Julian Birgikholm. Yeah, it's, it's almost exactly the way I said it. Let's talk about, uh, well, let's start with, um, are you in Oslo? Yeah, I'm in Oslo right okay. now. Yeah. What is life like in Oslo right now uh, where everybody uh, around the world is dealing with this uh, global pandemic? How how different is life uh, for, for you and for uh, your family right now? It's a little bit different from what I was used to. Um, everyone's in self-quarantine and we're just basically inside most of the day, but just trying to do the things we can to make the days go by. So it's a little bit different, but it's also good to be with my family and friends again. 
Now, my part of the world, uh, it, where I am in uh, Western Canada, in the Edmonton area, uh, it's it's nice and warm now. But uh, you know, even two, three weeks ago, we still had snow. Uh, what about for you? Uh, actually, today it's 20 degrees, so the the summer weather's coming. It's coming soon, so it's pretty hot outside today, actually. But we normally don't get warm weather until like late May. All right. Well, it's uh, nice to have a, an early spring then uh, for for yeah, both of us. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the hockey and uh, you know obviously the the shutdown for the season and hockey at all levels. Uh, really disappointing uh, result to the end of the year uh, for everybody and for the Steelheads. You were off to the playoffs. Um, tell me what it was like uh, being told that uh, you know what the year's over. It was awful. We were actually on our way to. Um a game and uh, uh, our coaches told us that we're going back boys uh, this season is most likely cancelled uh, due to the coronavirus so um, it was a tough tough to hear but at the same time we got to think about our health and, and all that so it's understandable for sure uh, and from at that point how long until uh, you were able to go back home to Norway I would say a week I think it was a week after I was on my on my way back to Norway pretty eager at that point to, to get home to family yeah yeah for sure uh it was a tough pill to swallow but um yeah just like i said it's good to be back home with family so can't really complain right now but it was definitely it definitely sucked at the moment but kind of yeah. went away after a while all right well let's talk about the hockey part of it and uh for yourself this year 19 points uh two goals 17 assists you are a defenseman uh but with uh mississauga how how would you describe the year? Um, how, how did you feel about your first year in the in the Canadian Hockey League? I think it slowly grew. Um, started off uh, not so good and just slowly became better. So I think that's a positive side on it. Uh, it's obviously a tough league. It's fast. Speed is high. Fiscal as well. So it was tough at the start, but as the year went on, I felt like I was getting better. Um, I think I had a pretty good uh, first season, rookie season. Obviously, it could have been better, but uh, point-wise, I think I could have been better, but I think uh, also my defensive part of it got way better, so I'm happy by that. What changed? Uh, you said it started out not great, ended much better. Um, so what was different, or was it just a case of it took you a little while to, to kind of get used to the? I would say it just took me a little while to adapt to, to the way they play, so after a while, it got better. Uh, now, the year uh, previous to uh, this past season in Mississauga, you were playing in Colorado. Um, interesting path to go from Norway to Colorado and then to the Ontario Hockey League, uh, playing just outside of Toronto. Um, what led you to Colorado? Uh, it was through my through my agent or advisor at the time. Uh, he just recommended me to, to go over there and uh, uh, play uh, U16 midget and... Uh, I just uh, trusted him in, in that, and I just went over and just hoping for the best. I really didn't know much at the time and couldn't really speak English or could speak a little bit, but it was hard. I struggled a little bit, and uh, yeah, I just hope for the best. Well, we'll get to the English part in a second because you're English, right? I mean, I I wasn't sure what to expect. I, I talked to a number of European players, and, and uh, you know, the command of the English language is different for everybody, but... You speak really, really good English. I'll get to that in a second. But um, moving to uh, to Colorado, was part of that plan just for the exposure to to try to get the attention of of teams and scouts and, and get an opportunity to to play? Oh yeah, for sure. That was that was a big part of it too. Um, 
at the time I wanted to go college and get my education and all that. Um, I actually got a scholarship from Denver, uh, but uh, before this season, uh, they again told me that it would be better coming to Canada and playing in OHL. So uh, I just laid my guts in, in that and trusted them with that again. So it turned out pretty well for me. That was from your agency? Yeah. Uh, well, that, and that's interesting then. Uh, but you're, initially it was with the Denver Pioneers, and then it changed. Uh, Mississauga drafts you in the, uh, the import draft. Did you know much about mm-hmm. the Canadian Hockey League at that point? Uh, no, I heard a lot of good players came from that league, but I personally didn't know too much about it. Um, so I didn't know I was getting drafted until the day before or a couple of hours before, I would say, uh, stressful time. And like, you know, uh, when you accept, uh, accept or sign a deal with the OHL, the scholarship goes away. So that was obviously a tough one. Um, but again, I just lay my, my trust in my agent. Well, and you have the CHL scholarship package. If uh, if you need to use it after your junior career is done, you can still use yeah. that as well. Um, now, if you had stayed back in Norway and not decided to come to North America, what would you have done? Would you have played junior in Norway, or would you go to Sweden or something like that? I would probably go to Sweden. I got uh, some offers from some teams there. But uh, my dream is to play in NHL, and I thought uh, – uh, going to the states would it's closer and adapt and I to adapt more to to the play and the ring size and the physical play and all that comes along with that. So I thought that would be the best option and go there and I just tried it and it worked out pretty well. Excellent. I'm speaking with Ule Julian Bjorkvist home. It maybe maybe it. <laughs> I'm trying, man. Good enough. Good enough. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, now um, tell me about learning English and, and how quickly you picked that up. You said a couple of years ago you didn't really speak a whole lot of English, so how do you uh, how do you learn a language so quickly? Uh, you just kind of adapt uh, as you go uh, school, teammates, you have to talk it every day. So it kind of went fast. Uh, obviously, there's some words that I still struggle with, and but it, it goes fast when you're talking it every day. So uh, that was a big thing, going to school. I remember the first day, it was tough. I didn't know where to go or anything like that and couldn't really speak anything. So uh, it, was a, it was some tough days there, but uh, it, it got better and I got used to it. So Does it help to watch a lot of TV or a lot of movies that are in English? Yeah, like- TV, uh, hockey. I watch a lot of hockey, uh, music, all that kind of stuff helps, obviously. Uh, outside of the language, what was the hardest thing to get used to about uh, life in North America compared to uh, back home? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's a lot more travel uh, than it's back here. Hmm. Uh, the games we we play like all over in the in the states, so that was a lot of plane rides and all that. So that's that's a big thing that we have to travel a lot to games and stuff like that. All right, let's get back to the hockey. Uh, for people who are listening to this right now and have never seen you play, and they might not even be uh, big Ontario Hockey League fans or anything like that, but they're NHL fans and they need to know who you are uh, for the NHL draft, how would you describe yourself as a player? I'm a big 200-foot uh, defenseman who who can play defense and puck-moving defenseman as well. Uh like to score goals, didn't do it too much, obviously, but mm-hmm. hopefully I can get better on that. Um, just hardworking guy, good work ethic, 
shows up every day and you know, ready to get better. I have uh, well the the OHL website lists you at six foot three and 188 pounds, and uh, Central Scouting has you at one 180 and six foot two. Uh, what are you at right now? 190 and six foot two. Yeah, I'm at like 200, 205 maybe around that. Oh really? Yeah, and six three still the same height. Six three and two hundred or two oh five. So is that weight that you've uh, put on over the course of the season or since the uh, the stoppage at the end of the year here? I actually at the start of the season I weighed uh one ninety five or two hundred, I'm not sure. But uh I don't think they got that so it was supposed to be that and uh I don't know what happened there, but uh <laughs> I just kept the same weight and now then now the summer is coming, I'm trying to gain a little bit more. What are you doing right now? Because you, you, I don't imagine you're – are you doing any skating right now? Is there opportunity in, to do that uh, in Oslo right now, or is that all shut down? It's all shut down. So I'm just trying to uh, – I have uh, uh, some weights outside in my backyard. I'm trying to lift weights. I'm shooting to working on my balance, uh, going for runs, biking, uh, all that kind of stuff, just stay in shape. Um, are, do you th- spend a lot of time thinking about the draft this year? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, I can't really change anything right now, so I'm just trying to focus on getting better, uh, just taking each day uh, to get better. Um, it doesn't really change anything uh, from my point of view. Oh, okay. So when the uh, the rankings come out, you're not a guy who goes to, to look where you're ranked and, and things like that? I looked at it, but as I said, uh, it doesn't really mean that much. It's just a list. It's nice to see my name, but at the same time, I know it's a whole lot of work to be done and just got to focus on that. Uh, that's a good attitude. Are you a, a social media guy? Uh, not really. I I have Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook, but um, I'm not trying to use too much time on that. What about uh, in your off time? Are you um, do you like to go outside and do you play other sports, or uh, are you a hunter or a fisherman or something like that? Or what do you like to do in your spare time? Yeah, you said it there. I like to fish. Uh, I have a cabin island, island, and we have a boat, so I like to go fishing. I used to play soccer, so I'm playing soccer with my friends here, and um, yeah, and tennis also. So that's the main thing I usually spend my summer doing. Excellent. Well, Uli, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I certainly wish you the best of luck. I apologize for wrecking your name uh, every time I tried to say it. but uh, <laughs> that's, that's all good. I appreciate your time, though, uh, and uh, you'll be back in Mississauga next year? Yeah, I will for sure. Well, uh, good luck, and uh, maybe we'll we'll talk to you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All the way from Oslo, Norway. I think that's actually the first uh, interview I've done with somebody that was uh, in Norway at the time when I spoke with them. Uh, I've had lots of Swedes and uh, some Finns on, and Germany, France, when I had uh, Alexander Texier on back in his draft year. And before I actually started the Pipeline show, the first European interview that I did was with uh, Angie Kopitar. It was for the Hockey News. Actually, it was for ISS International Scouting Services. And that was actually Angie Kopitar's uh, first North American interview. I still have that copy of the Hockey News because I have a byline in it, so that was cool. Uh, but this was Uli, Uli Julian Bjorgvik, home of the Mississauga Steelheads. Up next, we have another 2020 draft spotlight. Antonio Strongis of the London Knights is my guest. You get to know him next here on the Pipeline Show.
shot on goal for Denmark on that power play. Now McDavid back the other way. In comes Connor McDavid. Loose in front. Hey, it's Connor McDavid of the Erie Otters, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show. Living on a lighted stage approaches the unreal For those who think and feel In touch with some reality Beyond the gilded cage Nothing compares to the smile on a child's face after their wish has been granted. The Rainbow Society of Alberta is dedicated to granting wishes throughout the province to children who have been diagnosed with a life-threatening or severe chronic medical illness. And you can help too. View the wishes, refer a child, and donate at rainbowsociety.ab.ca or get involved as a volunteer. Having a wish come true fills a child's heart with hope and happiness. Visit rainbowsociety.ab.ca today. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Oh, my. Back on The Pipeline Show in our second consecutive 2020 Draft Spotlight segment. Uh, We're sticking in the OHL, but this time our guest is actually in North America and uh, uh, south of the border, though. Antonio Stranges from the London Knights. Uh, Welcome to The Pipeline Show, uh, Antonio. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me. Not not a, a problem at all. In fact, uh, great to get a chance to speak with you right now. Uh, and maybe we'll start with current events. Uh, what's life like where you are right now? Where are you? Uh, I'm in Plymouth, Michigan, back home here. Um, you know, staying pretty low key, staying home, eating a lot, working out. Um, <laughs> stuff that I stuff that I can't do when I go out. <laughs> I'm eating a lot too, but not a whole lot of working out. Do you have to balance, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> some inactivity, or or are you able to stay pretty active? Uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty active right now. I've been working out a lot, riding the bike, playing tennis, so I'm staying pretty active. Yeah, not able to get any ice time in though, right? Sadly. Yeah. Uh all right, well take me back to uh the end of the season this year and uh the London Knights, obviously another strong year for the Knights. Uh more often than not that's the case and headed into the playoffs and then the plug gets pulled on the season. Uh where were you when you were told? Um, we were actually at the rink before practice. Um we kind of knew what was going on when the NHL announced their their stuff, but uh, we had practice. We had a little scrimmage practice on Thursday, and um, we had a team meeting after, and Mark Hunter came in the room and kind of told us a spiel, and um, we ended up coming to the rink Friday morning for an exit meeting, and all the players just went right home after that. But, um, yeah, obviously we had a really good team, so we were pretty devastated that it had to end this way, um, especially for all the guys that, you know, we traded for and became and that came back from a higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tough way to end your junior career, but um, you know, there's some stuff that's just bigger than hockey, and obviously, this has taken over. So, yeah, well said. Uh, the London Knights uh, finish the the season. Still weird to say that it's finished with 62 games played, but uh, in <laughs> in in first place in the Western Conference. So uh, the number one seed headed into the playoffs, and no reason to think that uh, the team wasn't going to have. You know, uh, at least a few rounds of success, but uh, it, it was a tough race this year, a tight race. A lot of teams at the top. Obviously, the potential is there to be a championship team, uh, but it wasn't going to be easy. No, not at all. I mean, especially in the other conference, Ottawa was very, very good. They, we played them twice, and I think those were the hardest two OHL games I think I've ever played in. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of teams that that weren't weren't the best my rookie season, you know, kind of surprised everyone else this past year. Um, like Windsor really climbed up the ranks pretty good. And, um, um, even Kingston with those, they have a bunch of young players. They did way better than they did my first year. And so, you know, a lot of new players came in the league and kind of surprised everybody kind of changed the organizations around a bit. For you, 40 points this year after a 34 point 
a rookie campaign. Now you did get to play the, the entire season uh, as a rookie and uh, a few games short this year. But uh, what was the biggest difference for you? Um, I kind of just had a different mindset going into the season. Uh, my rookie season was kind of more, uh, you know, kind of prepare myself for the next season and pick up as much as I could from the veteran players. Um, obviously, my rookie season, we had a bunch of great veterans like Bouchard, Boquist, Formington. Um, so I think my rookie season was kind of learn what I learn what I can for the future. And um, I thought my rookie season was good. And um, this year, um, you know, we had a really good team, obviously. And, you know, it's uh, we had four really strong lines. So, you know, wherever you get placed, you're you're doing good anyways. And uh, um, obviously we wanted to make that playoff run and really have a push. And uh, we didn't get that opportunity this year. But again, London's always got a good team. So I'm sure we'll be right back at it next year. When it comes to point production, not a huge jump in points for you this year. I don't know what your expectations were at the start of the year. Are you happy with the way you played? Um, yeah, obviously expectations are high for myself. Um, obviously I'm not always pleased with the way I play. Um, but I think I did what I could for the team this year. Um, you know, obviously everybody wants to walk out with, you know, a point per game or, or whatever your goals are. But, um, you know, I took my uh, opportunity and I did what I could with it. And I mean, I think that's all I can really ask for is to get the opportunity. And I did. And, um, you know, I don't think I really disappointed anyone, but obviously, um, for myself and for my own goals, I wish I did better. Um, but like I said, we had a really good team and winning is way more important than individual work. So, um, obviously towards the end of the year, especially London, we have, we always have a winning team. So, um, you know, you want to do what you can to win, even if you, even if you don't play, you just want to win. Well said. And Timonio Estrada is my guest. He plays for the London Knights in the Ontario Hockey League. This is our 2020 draft spotlight segment. And uh, I mentioned to you before we started that there'll be a lot of people listening to this that aren't even junior hockey fans. So uh, let's get a bit of background. Uh, you mentioned you're in Plymouth now. Is that where you're born and raised? Yep, born and raised in Plymouth. Do you remember how old you were when you first started playing uh, competitive hockey? Um, I know I first skated at three. I, I want to say I played on my first team around five okay. out of USA Arena over here. It's right by my house. So that was my first team, and I think I was around five or six years old then. So Okay. Have you always been a forward? Always. Where are you most comfortable? Because the one sheet I'm looking at says center slash left wing. Uh, do, you, do you find yourself in the middle or on the wing more often? No, I don't play center. When I was in youth hockey, I kind of went back and forth between center and left wing. But um, in London, my last two years, I was left wing, and then this past season the last couple months i got switched to the right side um but yeah i'm mostly a winger okay but you you shoot left so switching over to the right and playing on your off wing was that an easy transition or how was it different i think mark and dale's um idea was to try kind of in the defensive zone put me on my forehand side when the puck got rimmed around the wall mm -hmm. i'd be on my forehand and it'd be easier for me to pick the puck off off the wall um, versus the left side i'm kind of where the goalies always rim it to um, I'm kind of on my backhand, and it's hard to get the puck out. So they kind of helped me out in a case like that. So, you know, the transition wasn't bad at all. Interesting. Uh, tell me about your path to the OHL. The Knights had selected you in the second round of the 2018 OHL priority selection. Uh, at that point, did you know much about the OHL? Was that your objective? Or, I mean, in Michigan, you got lots of Division One schools to pick from, and you're right in the uh, the the heart of uh, USA hockey there in Plymouth as well. So I imagine you had lots of options. 
Uh, yeah, I did. Um, growing up, I had the Plymouth Whalers where USA used to play over here. Right. And so I always grew up an OHL fan. I was always a huge London fan growing up. Whenever they came to town, it was always, it's always the most fun. And, um, as I got older, obviously college popped up in my head. Um, I was committed to the university of Michigan for the 2020 season. Um, I mean, either way, either route I went would have been fine um, with the U.S. program and the college or the OHL. But as a player, I always played up with older kids. I, I even played two years up one year. So I thought going to the OHL as a 16-year-old and playing against the older and stronger competition um, versus my own age group would help my development. And obviously, Mark and Dale's knowledge is just incredible. I mean, they just won gold with Team Canada, and that just shows how much they know about the game. And um, I kind of talked to them. And I thought that was the best route for me. And even when I'm there, like just the time they Mark and Dale put in and video and everything, they're just, it's the best organization to play for. And I'm happy with my decision. Well, that's uh, terrific to hear. Now it, the Wolverines, a uh, uh, top uh, program south of the border as well. Did When you had committed, uh, was that with Mel Pearson or was it still, was Red still there? Actually, I had a game there when I was in minor hockey and Red Berenson called me up to his office after the game, me and my dad. And um, he offered me a full ride scholarship after the game. And then I came home and thought about it with my agent and my parents. And uh, I ended up calling him back that night and committing. So that was pretty cool. But then I think the, I think it was the next year Mel Pearson took over. Did that play anything into it? You know, not anything against Coach Pearson, but that it wasn't red anymore, the guy that you had committed to play for. Did that factor in at all? No, not at all. I mean, as you said, Michigan, a very top school, great organization. So you know, you knew any coach that they brought in was going to be top notch. They're not right. going to bring in a coach that doesn't know what he's doing. So, um, you know, Mel's a great coach. Um, at the time, the assistants, Brian Wiseman and um, Billy Powers were two great coaches too, who obviously moved on to the NHL level now. Mm-hmm. But um, either way, it was going to be a great organization. So, Antonio Estrada is my guest here uh, forward with the uh, the London Knights. Now, for uh, fans who are, or listeners who haven't seen you play before, how would you describe yourself as a player? Um, I think I'm a very skilled forward. Uh, I can definitely produce a lot of offense. Um, I kind of, I think I play different than most players with the way I skate and the way I maneuver on the ice. But, um, I mean, I can score goals. In what way do you, are you when you say you're different like that? Uh, I think the way I skate's a little different than others. Um, I kind of skate more um, doing the 10 and 2s than I do. Skating forward when I go down the ice, which is different. Um, so that, that kind of, helps me stick out a little bit and um i think my creativity with the puck is a lot different than others um you know i i'm not afraid to take a risk on the ice but at the same time i'm not going to do something too crazy where where i'm going to cost the team anything but um i can definitely score goals make plays i think i have really good hockey iq smooth skater so i think i'm just really offensive now, not the biggest guy in the world at just under 5'11", correct me if I'm wrong, and uh, yep. Central Scouting has you at 168 pounds. I don't know if, if that's changed all here in the offseason or not, but um, being not being 6'2 and 210 hasn't slowed you down. Uh, how have you had success not being you know, a, an oversized player? Yeah, I think as a, as a smaller guy, you just need a, a really strong base. You, know, you, need, you need to be strong in the puck, have a good, strong lower body. Um, obviously... If you're short and you can't skate well, you're not, I don't think you're going to go too far. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think skating is a big thing, getting your first three steps in, you know, getting the top speed as quick as you can. That definitely helps. And just being strong in the puck, like I said, you know, 
I play against guys in the OHL that are, are six foot two, but you know, sometimes, you know, most of the time I, I can still come out with the puck, even though I'm not their height. So I don't think size really has to do with anything. Interesting. Uh, Antonio, what, what areas of your game do you think you still need to work on the most to, to have success once you get to the next level? Uh, I think I need to work on my 200 foot game. Um, just getting better in the defensive zone, kind of more staying with my guy and paying, ten- paying more attention to detail on the, on the back check and just stuff like that. Um, you know, doing my board work, chipping pucks off of the glass. Um, just, I think the defensive side of my game just needs to get better and I think I'll be fine. Now, being a Michigan guy, I don't want to assume you're a Red Wings fan, but, uh, who was your team growing up? Uh, growing up, it was Detroit. I, I love the Red Wings. I loved, uh, Henrik Zetterberg actually is my favorite player. Um, but yeah, I, I did love Detroit growing up. And then I think the last couple of years, it kind of slipped away from me. I'm a, uh, especially after Zetterberg retired, I kind of started watching more Chicago for Patrick Kane. Um, uh, but I wouldn't say I really have a favorite team right now. Uh, lastly, before I let you go, um, moving up to Canada to play, not a huge difference between the two countries, but anything in particular stand out from, uh, from the American perspective about, uh, living up here? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really think about it too much. I can't, uh, I can't really tell what's, uh, what's too different. I think, I mean, obviously I miss some of the restaurants here back home and, and stuff like that. But other than that, I don't think there's too much of a difference. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing I noticed was in Canada, they use coins instead of dollars, but I think that's really the only thing I've noticed. Yeah. It weighs a little heavier in your, uh, in your jeans. That's, uh, <laughs> well, Antonio, I appreciate your uh, time. Uh, wish you the best of luck, uh, next year, uh, with the Knights and, uh, whatever happens at the draft, whenever the draft happens, uh, I hope we can chat again. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Antonio Strongest from the London Knights. Uh, kudos to, uh, Bartlett Hockey for uh, setting up that interview. Appreciate their help. Uh, have a few more of their clients uh, coming up on the show before now and whenever the NHL draft happens. And you heard, if you didn't hear the conversation with Sam Cosentino earlier in the show, he kind of speculated mid-August. Uh, I did talk to another agent who said he doesn't think it'll be pushed back that long. Um, but I haven't talked to anybody who thinks it's still going to go at the end of June as usually scheduled. Especially because the league seems hell-bent on uh, trying to complete the season and the playoffs. Uh, so lots still to be hammered out between now and then. And the end of June is, uh, well, it's pretty much two months away. Uh, but I don't think the draft is happening as scheduled. So who knows when it will actually be held. we got one more segment to go on this week's episode. We are going to uh, catch up with a former Memorial Cup champion, two-time WHL champion, Three years uh, with the Edmonton Oil Kings, in fact, got to the WHL final in all three years. Now, we talk a little bit about that, but a lot about uh, what it's like for a kid playing high school hockey in Minnesota to even contemplate leaving to go play junior in either the USHL or the WHL. Cody Corbett is my guest. We talk to him about that next here on the Pipeline Show. St. Croix, just off the bench. He'll cut around a Royal along the side boards. Back for Sautner. Corbett wants the puck. One-time shot. Scores! Cody Corbett's first Western Hockey League goal. A one-timer. It's 2-1 Edmonton. It's Cody Corbett here from the Memorial Cup. And we're, uh, we're number one in the nation, baby. And you listen to the Pipeline Show. Down, 
Portions of the Pipeline show brought to you by Wises, working with growing businesses, businesses looking to build their brand, protect their trademarks, franchise, and expand their footprint on the world. If you have questions about trademarks or franchising, call Wises today. Get Wises on your side. Go to wises.pro for more information. That's W-I-S-E-S dot pro and follow them on Twitter at WisesPC. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. You want to go do karate in the garage? Yup. We are back on The Pipeline Show, and uh, we're going to end this week's episode, uh, catch up with a, uh, a former Edmonton Oil King. He's been playing the last number of years. He's been playing professionally all over the place. In fact, he uh, pulled on three different jerseys just this season here in North America, but he's been to Europe as well. Uh, former Edmonton Oil King and former Memorial Cup champion, Cody Corbett. Uh, welcome back to The uh, Pipeline Show, Cody. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, where are you right now? Uh, I am back home in uh, Stillwater, Minnesota. Uh, Stillwater, great, uh, great band. Uh, I don't know if you have ever seen that uh, that movie, uh, <laughs> Almost Famous. Uh, the, the band in that movie uh, called Stillwater. It was a great movie. It, where were you uh, at the point the uh, the season uh, everything kind of uh, shut down uh, this year? I, I mentioned you'd played for three teams. I think the last team that you were with was Bakersfield, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, I was actually in uh, Allen, Texas. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I was with the Americans. This year was, uh, well, the the way it ended, obviously disappointing for everybody. Um, what was it like hearing the news uh, at that point uh, in Allen? Well, we were on our way to Utah, actually, hmm. to play the Grizzlies. So we were, uh, that morning we had left Allen, Texas at, uh, I think our flight was at 4 o'clock. And, or, uh, we had to be at the airport, sorry, by 4 o'clock. And by the time we got to the airport and getting in uh, getting in line for to board the plane, we kind of heard some mumbles that uh, we might get shut down too. So uh, we hop on the plane. We have a layover in Vegas, get to Vegas, and guys are mumbling a little more now, saying that this might happen just because of uh, the prior night before the NBA shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time we got on the plane and off the plane in Utah, which is around an hour, we kind of knew for sure we had seen tweets and other guys texting about it and um, that we were going to get shut down too. So we had just landed in Salt Lake and our coach, uh, Steve Bartonson actually had a little meeting on the bus and told us we were on a flight heading back to Allen uh, 10 o'clock the next morning. So uh, we had kind of a, a weird experience with that, not having to play a three and three we had against Utah and we got turned around and right back to Allen, Texas. And I think it was a day later that Sunday, uh, they had talked about canceling the season. And then Monday morning we heard that we were canceled. So we had uh, had to pack up and head home. Uh, so you were in Allen for for how long and before you went back to Minnesota? Uh, we were there for about a week. Uh, my girlfriend and I and our dog, we were there and uh, just kind of hanging out, trying to see what was going on with it. And then things got pretty serious. So we thought we'd better head home before uh, we get stuck in Texas for a little while. Okay. Is that is that where you make your off-season home? You always go back to Stillwater? Yep, yep, yep. I've been uh, going back to Minnesota for pretty much all my summers except one I'd spent in Denver. Now, I had in-laws that were in Phoenix at the time, and they, they live up here. And there was some concern, would they be able to you know, get back? Uh, was there anything like that? Was it tough to to get from Texas to to Minnesota, or was it pretty pretty normal? 
You know, it was actually pretty normal. Um, the the highways were actually pretty clear because people at the time were already starting to hunker down a little bit. They yeah. already talked about shutting stuff down and whatnot. But actually, my former uh, Memorial Cup champion, good old Brett Pollock, was actually my roommate in Allen, Texas. So ah. I was more nervous about him trying to get back to Edmonton there. Yeah. And have you talked to Pauly since then? Yes, I have. He's all good. He's hunkered down, and he just he can't wait to get the 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 golf clubs up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're talking about possibly opening some golf courses around here. Our province so far has uh, not agreed to it, but uh, both BC and Saskatchewan have uh, decided that they're they're going to let that go. What about for for you? Are you able to get out and do anything, or are you just kind of staying close to home? You know, they just opened up the golf courses, I believe, Saturday. I think last Saturday, and um, we drove around a little bit, and I think every course I noticed had both sides of the, the almost the frontage road that most golf courses sit on around us were packed with cars, just lying down both sides. People getting their getting their golf fix in as soon as they could. Well, it's I guess on one hand it's great that people are able to get out and maybe break some of the monotony uh, of staying uh, self isolated, but at the same time, packed with cars means there's lots of people too, and I don't know that that's uh, the best idea in the world either, but uh, I'll, yeah. leave, I'll leave that to other people to decide. Um, <laughs> tell me about this season uh, for you uh, from a hockey perspective. Uh, I mentioned three teams, so it, you traveled around a little bit. What's that like? Yeah, um, it was good. Uh, I started the year, well, I'd signed a, an East Coast contract with uh, Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, the Gladiators. So I uh, was got down to Atlanta for camp and then went to actually Providence, uh, for their AHL camp, um, went back to Atlanta. And then before the season even started, I ended up getting called up to Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. So I spent a month there with them and uh, had a blast with all those guys, got to know a lot of the guys. And, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, but it was one of those tough things when when uh, Colby Cave passed away too. It, it kind of hit me at home with him because he was the first guy to come up to me in the locker room and say, hi, I remember you from the dub good battles and you know we had a couple good laughs and he's just an all-around nice kid um just so much to say we could go in deep with that but uh, and then yeah spent a few more months in atlanta there and then ended up getting traded to allen allen texas and that's where i finished up all right well you mentioned colby cave and yeah i think that impacted everybody that uh, ever uh, was around his time in the western hockey league and since he's uh, been a pro that's uh, tragic for sure and uh, thoughts of to, to, uh, his family and uh, his wife's family and, and everybody involved for sure. Um, now, the last yeah. couple of years you'd actually spent in Europe. Uh, what took you overseas? Uh, just the journey. You know, I, I, I'm a big travel. I love to travel. I love to see new things. And um, being, like you mentioned before, being the one kid who left from the dub and or left from Minnesota and to go up to the dub and yeah. Uh, not too many kids venture off like that, but I, I wanted to see different things. I wanted a new experience. And, um, that's kind of where I was too at the time. I, I wanted to see what it was like over there in Europe and see what the hockey was like and the culture and different aspects of life like that. And, uh, I loved it. <laughs> I had a blast with it and spent my year in, in uh, Italy and, oh, it was, it was definitely a, a lifetime experience for sure. And sometime in the Czech Republic uh, the year previous to that as well. Uh, would would you go back? I don't know what your contract situation is like right now, but uh, I mean, could you see foresee yourself uh, going back over again, playing somewhere? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely someday. It's it's a lot easier on the body over there, and you know, getting older too. It, it it's definitely where you see more guys who are in that little bit older age group go over there and finish their careers over there, and you know, see the world more and do things like that. So yeah, I, I look forward to being able to do that again someday. Getting older, you're 26, man. I'm almost 50. <laughs> <laughs> hockey world hockey world that, that's right uh cody corbett uh, former edmonton oil king my guest here on the pipeline show uh we alluded to that and before we were we we hit the record button i was telling you one of the things i wanted to ask about was leaving minnesota as a as a teenager to yeah. come up north and and play at edmonton in the whl and what that process was like because you know even recently i've uh you know with the the whl banner draft was yesterday and they have this new american draft and it, it's still a challenge to get Minnesotans out of Minnesota to come up north. And I've heard for the Minnesota kids and high school hockey, there is such a such a massive deal that if you leave, it's almost frowned upon and maybe you're ostracized a little bit. Uh, what was it like for you making the decision and the thought process, you know, do I go or do I stay? And then when you did decide to go, what that was like? Yeah, it, uh, it definitely came at me at a whirlwind. Uh, I was, going through my senior year of high school and um, we have some what's called the elite league in the twin cities where they take kids from all around the cities and kind of put together a league. And I uh, got through about quarter of it and Randy Hanch from the Edmonton Oil Kings uh, approached me and asked me if I uh, knew what the WHL was and just kind of talked about it a little bit. And I'll be honest, I had no idea what it was at the time. Wow. Uh, being a kid, being a kid from Minnesota like that and having their sights set on being a gopher or being a bulldog or uh, even a badger. I'm going to get reamed for the Minnesota <laughs> people on that one. But even a, even being a badger, just your Midwestern, uh, big college, big big fan base, things like that. That's what you look forward to playing on the rinks and the ponds here growing up. But once I, uh, once I kind of found out what the WHL was about, um, and my best friend from high school came from California, so he knew what the WHL was and how many guys get drafted out of it each year. And I believe the year before, I think it was 2011, the draft was in Minnesota. Mm. And my my friend and I went to it. And uh, I believe, who was that? Number one was Nuge. Yeah, I believe maybe. that year in 2011. Yep. And then uh, I think Darcy Kemper went, nine or 10 and all these dub guys. And that kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to saying to myself, wow, you know, if I want to play hockey in the long run, maybe this is the right path for me. So, uh, you know, we kind of went back and forth with my parents a little bit. My, (laughs) my dad wasn't happy at first, but then once he kind of followed in my footsteps of doing your research a little bit more and kind of figuring out the, just the, the, prospects that were coming out of this league each year he he really got behind it and you know that's kind of when I made the decision to go up and take my tour with Edmonton the I believe it's 48 hours at the time um, that you had eligible to go take your your tour before you could sign your contract and forego your college eligibility Um, so I went up to Edmonton that weekend not really knowing if I was going to stay they had played Portland Portland that night I was there and I believe they won so it it was a really good game and the hockey was fast and back and forth and I looked at my mom and I go 
wow, this is actually what taking that next step out of high school is like. And she goes, nope, this is actually a couple more steps than that. Hmm. So I, I that really opened up my eyes too. And my mom, kudos to her for doing her research the whole time on it. <laughs> she was behind me the whole time and wanted me to do it. So after our little tour and some talks, I decided that uh, my long-term goal was to play hockey. So I decided to stay there. Now, what was the reaction from uh, your coach back home uh, and and teammates and and friends? And uh, I mean, did they feel like you were betraying them, kind of? A little bit, yeah. Um, you know, I had a couple of my close friends. They were they wanted me to do it. They they saw potential in me, and I thank them a lot to this day for it because they were a big part of me going up there too. Um, and you know, my coach at the time was Phil Housley. Yeah. So that's it's a hard it's a hard guy to leave to go uh to go somewhere else and play and be taught a defensive offensive game which I liked at the time and uh yeah so that was a hard one we Phil and I we butt ahead for a little bit but uh, I think by the next summer um we were okay again and it's funny because him and I are uh his son is a good friend of mine Wilson Housley and you know we we hung up and stuff growing up and so we've always had a good good relationship but I think he was a little upset when I left <laughs> my senior year going to be the captain and kind of take control of the team but um, we got over it and we're all good now and every time I come home I'll say hi to him and uh, hang out with his son Wilson so I, we're all good now so that's always nice. Any regrets uh, on your decision? Absolutely not I loved every minute of it I loved every minute of it all, all my years in Edmonton I I I think about it all the time. Just having so much fun and my billet family, shout out to Kelly and Trevor Ritchie and they're they're unbelievable my three years and um Laxie and Hammy and just all the guys. I still talk to a lot of the guys from, from those three years, so it's it's uh it's something that <laughs> something that I'll never forget those three years for sure. Three seasons uh, with the Edmonton Oil Kings, two of them uh, to the Memorial Cup and uh, three straight uh, WHL Championship uh, uh, final appearances uh, for you and the Oil Kings in your time. Uh, I mean, nothing but success, uh, really, while you were here. Uh, I think uh, you're still currently the uh, second highest scoring defenseman uh, in franchise history. I think Dyson Mayo uh, has that uh, slight edge on you in that uh, category. But uh, when you think back, what are the highlight moments that you'll uh, that you think of? Whew, that's a tough one. I mean, there's a there's a lot of them. I mean, it's got to be the, the number one is obviously uh, being able to win the Memorial Cup with that team, and um, and that was one of those teams that was kind of an underdog the whole year, and people didn't really believe that we had the capability to make a run like that. But we knew inside the locker room that we had been there before. We knew what it took, and we did everything in our power with that core group of guys to help the young guys to go in that same direction. Because once you get a whole team like that, moving, moving in the same direction and getting those little parts clicking, it, it was so much fun. <laughs> it, it's hard to explain the, the fun we had in that locker room and how close that group of guys was. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was my first year being part of the broadcast uh, on a on a full time basis. Uh, that in uh, 2014 and going experiencing the the the, uh, the playoff push and uh, going through Portland and on to London. 
Uh, and Corey and mm-hmm. I talk about it. Corey Graham and I talk about it from time to time about winning the WHL championship against Portland because of it, such a rivalry between the two teams, three years in a row meeting in the finals like that, that when you look, when we look back on it, that almost seemed like the bigger accomplishment than winning the Memorial Cup because there's no rivalry with Guelph or London or, uh, or Valdor, although two really awesome games against Valdor, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but to beat Portland almost feels more special. When you, do, do you look back at it like that at all? Yeah, you know what? It's funny you say. I just watched the the game seven against Portland. I believe it was a week or two ago they had it playing. Right. And I and I watched the third period of that game, and little memories started coming back of plays and different times during the game. And that was <laughs> that 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 rivalry we had. I still talk about it to this day about going to the to the Rose Garden and and when they would score and play TNT and the whole crowd would be right over the top, you chanting right at you. I, I, I get, I just got the goosebumps thinking about it right now. Is that that's one of those scenes getting scored on in that rink that I'll never forget. Yeah. Fantastic crowd there in Portland. Great fans uh, in yeah. Portland uh, for sure. Uh, now you go to the, uh, the Memorial cup. There's a lot of uh, playoff beards on the team. Um, who had the worst playoff beard that you can remember? Uh, and keeping in mind that the only correct answer is Curtis Lazar. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to have to say his best friend, and that was Tristan Jari. Oh, Jars couldn't grow one either. Jars couldn't, just couldn't, couldn't grow one yet. I think he was only 18 at the time we won. Right. I think that was his 18 year old year, the, the year we won it all. And, uh, I mean, so he was just a young buck too. And, oh, I just remember him and Kurt walking in together and it's just, oh, you guys, you can't have those two side by side when you want to talk playoff beards. <laughs> I, I still remember laughing the morning of the final game and, and, uh, talking to Curtis and saying, oh, finally, once this, you know, win or lose, at least you'll be able to shave that playoff beard afterwards. And, you know, he had <laughs> three or four whiskers on his chin. He had a good yeah. chuckle at that one. Um, Cody, oh. I, I was telling you about this new American draft that the, uh, WHL has created this year. Two rounds and it's only Americans. It's an effort to try to get more American players up to the WHL. Do you think it'll help? And it's not just for Minnesota, obviously. It's, you know, a lot of California players and Arizona and Missouri and everywhere uh, in the western uh, half of uh, the United States. What can the WHL do do to to get more Americans up? And do you think this will help? Uh, I I think it'll help a lot, actually. That's that's a good plan for them to start drafting Americans and... I mean, down here, especially in Minnesota, the big thing is the USHL draft and the NA draft. And um, all the kids around here at that age are always dialed in watching that draft, hoping they get called. Same kind of scenario. And I, and I feel like once kids start hearing the name getting called in that kind of draft as well, they might start taking that, that tour to go up there or going to training camp and seeing how it goes or taking that just having that thought of having another league where guys get drafted to the NHL some step right out of that league and go straight to the NHL mm-hmm. um it, it it's just another it's another path for them and i feel like once kids once i shouldn't say kids once the i mean they're young adults at that point once they start thinking too that there's it's such good hockey you get the pro lifestyle um it it just kind of grooms you a little differently to to become a pro if that's what you're looking to do. 
when your playing career is done many years from now and uh, you're an old man like <laughs> I am, uh, would would you have an interest in coaching or coming even coming back to the uh, to the WHL and, and coaching within the league, maybe getting into recruiting players? I would. I, I would absolutely love it. I mean, hockey's been a dream, a passion, a love of mine since I can remember. And uh, I have a feeling that it's going to stay that way for a long time. And um, I would love to stay in the game somehow, whether it's scouting or player development or coaching, anything like that. I, I'd love to be able to stay in the game and stay in tune with uh, with hockey like that. Excellent. I always think that uh, the league should have players, uh, you know, like yourself who left uh, an area like Minnesota to work with the league and try to improve recruitment uh, uh, from your perspective, because I think your perspective would be valuable uh, insight for the league and for teams. Uh, so good to hear that uh, for sure. Cody, what's next for you? What are you, what are you doing right now uh, in this extended off season? <laughs> well, uh, I got to find a little work with uh, my brother's friends, uh, kind of hauling company. I'm just running some flooring around different uh, kind of new development homes and stuff like that. So I just drop flooring off and, and uh, pick it up from a giant warehouse. So uh, I'm by myself the whole time. So I don't have to really, I would say, worry about being around others, but uh, I don't come encounter with too many other people. So it's, it's kind of a fun job. I just kind of drive around all day and listen to music and drop some flooring off. So I'm still getting a little workout in, but uh, I'm just going to do this for the time being until hopefully they open the rinks back up here pretty soon. And, can get back on the ice again. And do you have hockey plans for next year yet, or uh, do you kind of uh, is that on the side, not the back burner necessarily, but on the side burner? Yeah, just on the side burner for right now. Uh, just kind of focusing on the task at hand, and until we kind of hear more about what's going to happen, uh, then I'll kind of start looking around a little bit and seeing uh, seeing what pops up. But I'd love to go back to Allen too. I, I love the area. I love Texas, so. It's a uh, fan base is awesome too. So it's a uh, good spot in the East coast hockey league for sure. Well, Cody, listen, I really appreciate your time. I, I enjoyed catching up. Uh, this is a fun conversation. Thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's good to talk to you again. It's Cody Corbett, formerly of the Edmonton oil Kings, a number of teams as a pro as well. And, uh, always great to catch up with, uh, with Cody Corbett. He's uh, always been as far as I can remember, uh, a really solid interview. And a great perspective on uh, what it was like for him as a Minnesotan playing high school hockey. How about that? Phil Housley's your coach. He's a legendary NHL offensive-minded defenseman. He's your coach, and you're contemplating um, leaving. Not just the high school and not just the state, but leaving the country and going to play in the Western Hockey League. Not an easy choice. It worked out well for Cody Corbett, and I'm glad to hear that uh, he would consider you know, having a role... For, uh, for either for the Oil Kings or for the league in uh, in working and trying to expose the league more to uh, specifically into Minnesota. So I think that would help the league to have people who were in that situation from that state who came and played in the league to, you know, shed some light on, on what it's all about. Uh, so I really appreciated uh, Cody making the time to come on the show to talk about that for sure. With that, I'm putting the uh, the bow on the episode for the week. Next week, more of the same. Hope to have at least another uh, couple 2020 draft spotlights. Don't know who the uh, the big guest will be in terms if if I'm going to have a uh, a longer segment like the one earlier in this episode with Sam Cosentino. But if you have a suggestion, 
or somebody that uh, would fit the bill for a long-form uh, conversation, please let me know, and I'll see what I can do about putting that together. A quick thank you again uh, to everybody who has signed up uh, recently to be a patron at patreon.com slash the pipeline show. Love you guys and uh, appreciate your contributions. Your couple of bucks a month to get uh, early access to the show really helps keep the show going. So I appreciate that. Between now and next week's show, just uh, wanted to say again that uh, everybody should be staying home and doing uh, following all the recommendations from the health experts out there continue flattening the curve and all of those uh, types of things and uh, stay safe we'll talk to you next week here on the pipeline show till then i'm keith flaming see ya